So in this life, I want to be happy. In this life, I want to lead a satisfied, flourishing way of living in this world. But like you, I'm often, often faced with the question, how am I going to get that? Where can I find all the happiness and the life that I'm longing for? Well, throughout this letter, it's no surprise by now we're in chapter 3 after all. John, this aged pastor, this ancient person who walked with Jesus, he's consistently pointing to Jesus. He's giving us binary options for life versus death, saying life is found in relationship with Jesus. Life is found in confessing our sins, trusting in the forgiveness that only Jesus gives. Life is found through being brought into fellowship with God through Jesus. Life is found through living according to the righteousness that Jesus taught us. Life is found in loving one another as God has first loved us in Jesus. And yet, John's audience were at a crossroads as John taught. Because these false teachers had come to them and they were calling God into question. They were asking the church questions like this. Will you really find life that is flourishing life listening to that teaching? Will you really find the happiness that you long for? Grace City, through the text we're going to look at this morning, God is speaking powerfully to us. Because as Christians in 2021, we are faced with the same question that John's audience was faced with. We too are offered these two mutually opposed visions of human flourishing. Will I find flourishing in life by following my way according to my will? Or will I find flourishing in life according to God's will and his way? As we look at our text this morning and John's words about flourishing life, John will continue to draw us toward true life in Jesus by warning us about lawlessness, warning us about the work of Satan, and compelling us with the work of Jesus. Those are our three points. A warning about lawlessness, a warning about the work of Satan, and compelling us by the work of Christ. And it's my prayer as we look at this text and as we walk through this sermon together that God will work powerfully to lead us out of our sin and rebellion against him and into true flourishing life that's found in relationship with him through Jesus. So let's begin by looking at verse 4 in our first point in John's warning about lawlessness. In verse 4, John writes this. He says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And in this passage, John is beginning by setting up two categories of people. To be clear, not categories of those who are sinless and those who sin, but actually a deeper category. A category of those who entrust themselves to God's forgiveness, his gospel and his righteousness and love, and those who don't entrust themselves to God. I think when we come to this passage and passages like it in 1 John, we can be confused and it can feel like John's saying, you're only really a follower of Jesus if you don't have any sin in your life. But that's not exactly what he's saying. Christians still sin. I still sin. But Christians aren't lawless. 
See, a lawless person believes that true flourishing life is when they are free to pursue the life they want apart from God. Let me say that again. A lawless person and the lawlessness that John is warning us about is when we think that true flourishing life, the happiness we long for, will be found not in relationship with God, but apart from him and apart from his rule in our lives. The sad reality, though, is that lawlessness is very much a part of your story and of my story. And in fact, lawlessness is a part of the story of all of humankind in this world, stretching all the way back to the beginning. Because as human beings, we naturally see God's laws, relationship with God as stumbling blocks to joy. Adam and Eve, for example, the first couple that God made, they lived in a garden, paradise in the presence of God. And they were given by God a single law. Genesis 2 Verses 16 to 17, we read these words. This is the law they were given. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You can imagine Adam and Eve living in this beautiful garden paradise in the presence of God, enjoying a relationship with him, trusting him. They don't necessarily understand all the commands he's given, but trusting him, they know he's good. Until the day when Eve was tempted. Because when the serpent tempted Eve, it tempted her by calling into question the goodness of God's law. And he asked her this question. He said, well, Eve, did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Is that what he said? And the serpent tempted Eve to turn away from God and to find life in herself apart from him, to call into question his commandments for her. And Eve then, looking at the goodness of the tree, seeing the attractiveness of that fruit, it looks good. Actually, I I want that fruit. I desire it. It seems like a good thing for me to have that. She began to trust in her will as she turned away from God. And as Adam and Eve both chose their own will and their own freedom outside of obedience to God's will, they did something terrible. They plunged this created world that was in rich relationship with God into rebellion against God, into war against the good creator that had made them and loved them. They led humanity into lawlessness, not trusting this loving creator, but looking for life apart from him. Now, Adam and Eve ate from a tree. It doesn't seem that bad. But as this grew and this lawlessness progressed in humankind, their children killed one another. This is lawlessness, following our will rather than God. Now, we need to note this. When you realize that God's laws are actually not just arbitrary, That God's laws are given to us as human beings for our good. He's the creator of the universe. He knows how it operates and how we are best to flourish within it. He made us. He's given our laws, his laws, for our flourishing and our happiness. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 32 to 33, I I was reading this passage this week uh, in our our Bible reading plan. Uh, But Moses writes this to the people of Israel. He says, You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you. And this is the important part. Look at the end. 
Here's the reason. So that you may live. So that it might go well with you and that you may live along in the land that you shall possess. See, God's laws, relationship with him, the constraints that come from living in that loving restraint, a relationship with him, therefore are good. But in the story of the Bible, again and again, God's people choose their way rather than his way, and they reap terrible consequences as a result. In Christ City, it's always been this way in the history of the world. And so why after Adam and Eve, the ancient story of the Bible spirals down, not just in Cain killing Abel, but further and further into horrific evil. It's why ancient Persia and Greece and Rome were so cruel. As they were built on ethics of power and might, where the powerful could rape and abuse and use their might as they desired. It's why the great communist states far later than that in our own recent history in the past 100 years, why they have perpetrated horrific cruelty and evil. Ilya Salman, professor at George Mason University and scholar at the Cato Institute, he writes this about this period of time. He says, collectively, communist states kill as many as 100 million people. More than all other repressive regimes combined during the same time period. More than three times the population of Canada today. Why? Why was that? Well, because they rejected the notion of God and his moral commands and embraced a world where, like Greece and Rome and Persia before them, the right thing to do was to use your might, was to use the strength that you had to overcome and to flourish. They listened to the atheist scholars like Nietzsche, and those who came after him and followed him to the logical conclusions away from God's laws and into immense suffering and evil. And still today, this is why the Chinese government practices genocide against the Uyghurs for similar things, thinking that the way of flourishing in this world is according to their plans, not according to the plans of God. But Christ City, this destructive way of living that's so shocking for us, it's not something that's just distant from us and a part of ancient history. It's not out there, it's in here. It's not past, it's present. Because we too choose our own will all the time in our own society. We choose our freedom apart from God's will. Or to say it a different way, we love ourselves first. We're full of self-love that rejects love for God and love for others according to his word. And we cause great harm in the process. I want to walk you through a couple of the ways that this happens at a societal level in our country. See, in our own country, we do this and we hurt the most vulnerable, the unborn. And friends, we don't talk about abortion very often these days in the ways that maybe we have in the past. But it's important for us to still grapple with this immense evil in our own society. There are 100,000 abortions every year in Canada. And I'm wondering, what will God say to us at judgment about that? Will he condone our moral reasoning and the way that we try to, to put ourselves forward as compassionate and caring? Will he condone our genetic testing and selective abortions for kids with Down syndrome and other genetic defaults and abnormalities? 
Will he ask where the church was and why we didn't obey him and stand with him and love the family that he created and love the widow and love the orphan, love the vulnerable mother and love the children? In our society, we euthanize those who are suffering and dying. But will God be persuaded by our compassion that is willing to offer assisted suicide, but isn't willing to draw near in compassion, to offer support and friendship and love, to value those that suffer, to affirm their dignity and their worth even in the midst of their suffering? In our society, we combat the created limits of our personhood and our sex and our gender. But will God be persuaded that our actions are loving when we offer hormone therapy and gender reassignment to confused and troubled and suffering children and youth? Or will he hold our generation accountable for not offering a better solution, a solution found in a loving relationship with the God who created them? Will he hold us accountable for not drawing near in love and support and friendship? as those that have the way of life and know the way of Jesus. You see, even in Canada, we think freedom and autonomy will lead to the happiness that we desire and the flourishing that we long for. We say things and we think things, I think, like utopia is around the corner. We've entered a brave new age. It's going to be amazing as we move in this new direction. But is it? Will it? I think we know the answer. Now, I know this isn't the cheeriest start to your Sunday morning, Christ City. We're not like in the middle of the most uplifting uh, topics in text. But it's important for us to hear this. And I want to warn you, it does get worse before it gets better. Because though we think that our decision-making in this world is neutral, We kind of wander around and we just exercise our reason rationally and pick the things that are best. The Bible says otherwise. I want you to look at our second point and the work of Satan. And go back to the garden with me. Because in the garden, it was a serpent, the enemy of God, who spoke lies to Adam and Eve. It was him who led them to doubt God and place their trust in their own version of human flourishing apart from God. And today it's very much the same because Satan is alive and well and he's manipulating us still, speaking lies to us, eager to destroy us and to lead us away from the life and the flourishing and the love in relationship with a good and holy and loving God. I want you to look at what John says in chapter 3, verse 8 in our text, but also what Jesus says in the Gospel of John in chapter 8, verse 44. I'll read both those texts to you now. John writes, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And Jesus says, Satan was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And Christ said, the lie that Satan loves to whisper loudest of all is this one. God's way will not lead to your happiness and to your flourishing. 
Satan loves to say God's way, God's purposes, God's word, the salvation that is in Jesus, these things will not lead to your flourishing and to your happiness. And it's a lie that we face every day of our lives as Christians living today. One of the most powerful depictions I know of wrestling with this lie, though, comes from the testimony of an African-American woman named Jackie Hill Perry. In her book, Gay Girl, Good God, she describes the process that she went through believing the lies of Satan and following her own desires before coming to trust in Jesus and to know the love and the life that are found in him. It's a long quote, but I want to read it to you whole. So I want you to pay attention to what she says and to hear her testimony about fighting this lie. Jackie writes this. To me, the devil made more sense than God sometimes. Both he and God spoke. God through his scriptures, Satan through doubt. I'd learned the Ten Commandments in Sunday school in between eating a handful of homemade popcorn and picking at my stockings. The thou shalt nots didn't compliment the sweet buttered chew I found myself distracted by. They were a noise I didn't care to welcome. You can't, you shouldn't, do not, didn't sound like a song worth listening to. Only a terrible noise to drown out by resistance. Satan, on the other hand, only told me to do what felt good or what made sense to me. I defined goodness on my own terms. It wore whatever definition I decided it should have on for the day. God had indeed been the original one to introduce the concept of goodness into the earth, but for me to live in his kind of goodness, faith was required. All that he said was good, was good because he was, including all that he'd commanded me not to do. For he knew that the cruelest thing he could ever do was to not tell me and everyone alive to avoid what would keep us from him. Yet unbelief doesn't see God as the ultimate good. So it can't see sin as the ultimate evil. It instead sees sin as a good thing and thus God's commands as a stumbling block to joy. And believing the devil, all I had to do was trust myself more than God's word. I had to believe that my thoughts, my affections, my rights, my wishes were worthy of absolute obedience and that in laying prostrate before the flimsy throne I'd made for myself, that I'd be doing a good thing. Friends, like Jackie, we believe the lie. We believe that flourishing and goodness And happiness will be found following our lives our way. And we're deceived and held under in that deception by the power of Satan. So who will free us? How can we be freed from that lie out into the goodness and the love and the blessing that God has for us? Jesus. The good news is Jesus. It's always all about Jesus. He is the Savior who will save us. Look at our third point in the work of Christ and the good news about Jesus that John wants us to know. Christ City, Jesus entered this world as our Savior. He entered as a human being who is different from us. Not hell-bound, not hell-bent on living for his own will, but eagerly submissive to the Father and his good and loving purposes. Look at Jesus' own testimony in John 6, verse 38. 
He says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And look at 1 John 3, verse 6 in our passage, when John writes, in him, in Jesus, there is no sin. Jesus is not lawless. He's submitted to the good and loving purposes of the Father. He's a firstborn son of a new humanity, not led astray in our rebellion and lawlessness, but submissive to the good, loving purposes of a good father. And in his loving submission to the Father, Jesus willingly took our place. He bore the punishment that you and I deserve for our rebellion against him. And Christ's city, his blood cleanses us from all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame. He takes it all away, dealing with it forever at the cross. John says in verse 5, Jesus came to take away sins. But there's more. Because through the death on the cross, through his death on the cross, Jesus did something else. John writes in verse 8, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Christ said, because of the cross of Jesus, Satan's power is broken. Jesus has won. And Jesus is winning in the lives of those in his church. And Jesus will finally win and show his victory when he crushes Satan completely under his feet forever when he returns. And in the lives of sinful human beings like you and I, that means that he has destroyed the power of Satan's lie over us. He's destroyed the power of the lie that tells us that following our will will lead to flourishing life when it won't. Well, how did he do that? How is this work and this power of Satan destroyed? Well, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil by demonstrating God's love for us once and for all. And in demonstrating God's love for us, he has now won us back to this place where we can trust him. We'll believe him, where we know his love and are moved in our hearts to obedience and to faith. Satan says, God doesn't love you. You cannot trust him. But Jesus in the gospel says, I love you and I willingly died in your place and for your sins, you can trust me. And friends, in the Bible, we're called his sheep and he is the good shepherd. We are his followers. Look at what Jesus tells his disciples in John 10 verses 7 to 11. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep, my disciples, the children of God, they do not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have a life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Christ City, Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus is the only one who will lead you by laying his life down for your good. All that have come before him, all those around you tempting you today, they've come to steal and to kill and to destroy. It's only Jesus who offers life. In Christ City, you need to know that good shepherds use their staffs. 
Good shepherds establish boundaries. They guide their sheep away from things that will harm them toward what is good for them. When wolves come, good shepherds protect their flock. When the flock thinks freedom from the shepherd will lead to their flourishing, the shepherd draws them back into safe pasture. Jesus is our good shepherd. His word and his spirit are his staff, leading us and guiding us. And he provides and proves his love by dying in our place for his sheep. On the other hand, Satan's a false guide, working all the time to deceive you and to lead you into the, desert, into the desert where every offer of true flourishing life and happiness is only a mirage. So Chris City, I want you to stop and think about your own life. I want you to just think for a moment, sit back, close your eyes and consider what has following your own desires done for you lately? Where has it been leading you? Think about it in your relationships, in your personal life, in your habits, in your practices. Has it led you to happiness and to flourishing? Or is it leading you you away from those things and away from God? Jesus has come to lead you home. My challenge to you this morning is, won't you receive him? Won't you turn again to him in trust and in faith? He loved you enough to lay his life down for you. Won't you take a step of faith and obedience? You know, in conclusion, John wants us to know true flourishing life and to beware of the offer of false life in lawlessness. That's only a fiction. John wants us to live this rich life as children of God, delighting in his love and the love of the Father. And he knows that when we do this, when we delight in him and live with him and abide in Jesus, that our lives will show it in the way that we live. Look at verses 9 to 10. There's this distinction that the children of God have in this world versus the children of the devil. Verses 9 to 10 say this, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this, it is evident, it's clear who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. You see, in Jesus, God has birthed this new humanity. His spirit, his seed, his love rests upon us. His righteousness is birthed within us. And we are becoming more and more distinct from the world as we follow him faithfully, not giving into lawlessness, but walking in obedience as his children. And right now, I can't get into all of this. We're going to leave a lot of this to discuss next week and to drive deep into the particulars of living this righteousness out in our lives. But I do want to leave you with something here. I want to leave you with this. Christ City, we need to embrace and to recognize that the children of God are distinct from the world. We are to be distinct from the world. I think that's an uncomfortable truth, but it's a beautiful and purposeful one for us in our lives. This week, I want to challenge you to live courageously for him. Take steps of obedience as children of God who are not ashamed of our Father. There's a pernicious lie that we face in our lives, and it's this. We believe that as Christians, if only we are well-read enough, 
If only we are wise enough or smart enough or winsome enough or loving enough, we won't ever face situations where we are hated by those who are not God's children. Christ City, let me tell you what that is. That's a lie. It's not true. Jesus said that if they hated me, they will hate you too. If we're to be faithful, we need to be willing to stand out as those who live for God's will rather than our own. But Christ City, if we, faith, if we are faithful in this way that we're talking about this morning, we will suffer with Jesus, yes. But in our suffering, we will have this incredible purpose. We will stand forward as those that hold on to the way of life. That our lights in the midst of a world of darkness saying, life isn't that way. Life that is true, flourishing life is here. We'll be witnesses for the goodness of the salvation that God has given to us in Jesus We will live for his glory. We will live purposeful lives for him. It will be meaningful and joyous and good as we walk with him. So Christ City, be strong. Be courageous. Trust not in your will. Trust in God's will. In this world, Jesus said, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Would you pray with me? Father, we need courage. We need love. We need courage to stand in your truth. We need the love of Jesus to fill us to the full so that we would do that as his children, as your children. Father, we want to be witnesses of a greater and better life. Would you equip us for this in Vancouver, in our relationships with our friends, with our family, with our neighbors and all those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.